This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to the Electric Sheep Film Show on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and the track you've just heard was the Langley School's music project with their cover of Rhiannon by Fleetwood Mac. In this evening's program, I'm looking at a trio of films which reveal aspects of culture that are rarely discussed or willfully ignored by society. Later in the show, I'll be talking to filmmaker Stephen Eastwood about his documentary The Island, which shows the end-of-life experience of four people in a hospice on the Isle of Wight. 
I'll also be talking to young director Luke Tedder about his movie Precognition, a Black Mirror-style thriller which imagines a scenario where people avoid all experience of the world they live in due to their perception always being replaced by an augmented reality app. However, to start off with, I'm talking to Red Haircrow about his movie Forget Winnetou, Loving in the Wrong Way. This film, which will be screening at the Native Spirit Festival in London next month, looks at the experience of Native Americans who are living in Germany. Their experience coloured by the patronising and old-fashioned view that Germans have of Native Americans, expected to be like the fictionalised version of their great-great-great-grandparents, as featured in tales such as that of Winnetou by Carl May, a character who made his debut in the novel Old Firehand in 1875 and appeared in a number of novels, short stories and subsequent film adaptations in the years to come, all of which have helped to shape the German perception of what Native Americans are like, which is very much unlike the modern experience of Native Americans in modern Germany. To be honest, I, I didn't actually know that there was a Native American community in Germany or indeed that there was this sort of patronising attitude to Native Americans in the country. So obviously your film deals with both of those two aspects. Yes, that's right. It's actually a really long history of um, German interest in Native American peoples and cultures stemming back um, largely um, attributed to the works of Karl May who is a German author who wrote a series of books on a a Native American tribe in the late 1800s and published through the early 1900s. So it really captured the imagination of the German people for many reasons and became extremely popular with some really notable figures like Adolf Hitler was a fan of Karl May's works, um, Albert Einstein, and Native Americans as this commodified kind of stereotypical image became a part of what they feel to be German culture. And it's been passed down uh, generationally um, for decades. Mm. But also, you know, I I watched the trailer for your film. Uh, You interview a number of people of Native American descent who are living in Germany. So presumably this kind of slightly perverse mythology that has existed in German society has also affected the way that uh, people living in Germany interact with people of uh, Native American descent. It very much does because the the stereotypes and um, mis-images of Natives that have been created are so strong that um, and they're so pervasive that it's, it's really superimposed upon anyone they guess to be of Native American heritage, usually based on a stereotypical appearance, uh, like you see in the Hollywood movies or any movies, really. Uh, and their expectations of how you should speak, how you should dress, everything about you. Mm. And if you don't meet those expectations, um, it can be a really abusive situation or uh, very condescending. Um, and if you don't meet those expectations, even if you're native, then you're considered by some unreal or yeah. not authentic. Hmm. I mean, I looked, you know, um, because obviously the the name of your film is uh, all about Winnetou. And so I Googled how the character has been portrayed in fiction films. 
And obviously there was a series of films in the 1960s that you know, continued uh, with the stereotypes. But I see that there was a film about the character as recently as 2016. So clearly it's something that hasn't gone away in German culture. It's something that uh, people in Germany continue to revisit. Yes, very much so. The, and with the, the film that was in 2016, I'd actually been contacted by the, the production company as they wanted me to be a consultant on um, one of the films and also a previous film that also dealt with a Native American story. And, um, and, and conversely, I was contacted by a group that wanted me to help protest the film. <laughs> mm. And I, I did neither of those things because I said the truth of the matter is that no matter how harmful Native stereotypes are, such as in films like this, they're still going to be there, mm. basically. They're, we're going to be ignored. We continue to be ignored. So what I eventually found to be is to try to be more educational mm. and reach the people who want to be reached. And I said with, with this new Winnetou film, I didn't like actively protest it because uh, it was basically, let's see what they're going to do this time. Okay, they've had a few decades to learn a bit more. We have the internet. Even if you can't go meet some Native Americans, you can read what they're saying about things like this. And they didn't get any better. And in fact, it was worse. Mm. So I said, that was your opportunity. Um, even uh, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the uh, board members on the Carl May Museum and, um, and I guess the function, the board of um, board of directors there is Dr. Peter Boltz, and I've been in conversation with him for for almost 15 years now. He was a wow. former curator of the Ethnological Museum. And we have some very different viewpoints about Native stereotypes and exploitation of Natives, but I can re respect his honesty mm. about the position of the Carl May Continuing Board, and uh, but he admitted themselves that they didn't really know what to do with this new movie that was made because they also didn't like it very much. And uh, they were preparing a statement because it kind of impacted their their business and that more people in, uh, in the public are a little bit more informed. And it was a general consensus that they should have done a little bit better. Sure. And well, and I mean, even in the trailer, you know, there's some footage of uh, the interior of the museum. And it looks yeah. incredibly old-fashioned, so I'm astonished that they haven't updated it with the research that's been done since the um, collection was presumably first put on display. Yes, and I just learned uh, just a couple of weeks ago that it's some particular anniversary of the Karl May Museum. And so they're trying to re retune, revisit this image because, as Dr. Bolt said, their uh, kind of patronage has been going down. Mm. But um, the 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 main issue continues to be that even if they want to do better, their business is structured around exploitation of the interests of native peoples. Mm. It's like a whole town; it's a whole business to do this. Hmm. And they, you know, not just them, but other kind of um, Native American pseudo towns and. and Entertainment venues are, you know, making a great deal of money through these years off Native Americans in this misrepresentation. And it directly impacts not only Native Americans, of course, it directly impacts them, but it also affects non-Natives because it's continuing to teach another generation of people that it's OK to be culturally abusive. Mm. It's OK to misrepresent. 
And so it's continuing this kind of cycle of genocide or violence. Mm. And obviously you interview a number of people for this film, um, people like the curators, um, people who are of Native American um, descent living in Germany. Thinking of the latter group, whether it was their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents who moved to Germany, did you find that there was a point in their family history that the reason they moved to Germany was because the country seems to be welcome to this myth and then they found they're kind of reacting against it as actual human beings? Almost with everyone I, I spoke to or interviewed, whether in the movie or outside of it, experienced that same thing. Because there's this general belief, and it's still very, very pervasive among uh, Native peoples, say in North America, for example, that, oh, Germany loves Native American people. Huh. You will get treated like a rock star. You mm -hmm. will. But only if you are that stereotype they want. The minute you step outside of that or be yourself, you will see how you're treated. Um as a, as a psychologist, as a writer, um, I was in contact and continue to be in contact with a number of Native Americans. And even one particular performer who he's, he's First Nation, but he also performed as an Indian in, in um, what would be considered a, a positive area. Well, yeah, and they want to take photos of you and everything like that. But it was no surprise to me that on the other side, this person at times was even suicidal because of the stress of, okay, when you're dressed up and you're in regalia and you're dancing, everybody wants to know you, but when you're in your plain clothes, nobody wants to know you. When you're trying to get back from the town to where you work, the bus drivers aren't gonna give you a ride and you have to walk an extra 45 minutes in the dark because you're just another brown person. This is the huge contrast. And even some of the natives I knew who weren't performers, they were just everyday people, you know, living around these same, expectations many of the ones i know are almost uh, recluses now they're very very careful when they go out in public they don't want to meet new people they don't want to to interact because they've been so traumatized this life of of where your feathers where your leather you know you're supposed to be this way you're supposed to be that way and they don't want you you want they want you to be that novelty but they don't want to know you personally mm. Well, and I guess, you know, particularly making this film um, at this moment in time, it, there seems to be quite a febrile atmosphere in Europe in terms of being someone who's from an immigrant group, even if you've lived there for generations and your parents have done as well. There's this new kind of populist uh, narrative of nationalism going on. And I mm -hmm. guess that must have fed into uh, the interviews as well. Yes, very much so. And that's that's a really important point that a lot of people, Native and non-Native, don't really realize. Because in Germany, Native Americans are like the favorite stereotype. You can get treated well. But some of the very same people that are very enthusiastic about this Native stereotype are some of the same ones who don't like immigration. They, uh, they see themselves like hobbyists, for example, who like really emulate you know, a Native lifestyle or whatever. A number of them are connected to alt-right groups or the far-right groups, even neo-Nazis, because they see themselves as the first people of Germany who um, can be compared to Native Americans of old who let in too many foreigners, and that's how they lost their land, and that's how they lost their culture. So there's a, there's a connection to alt-right thinking, and 
nationalism and a lot of this hobbyism or this this fascination and fixation on Native Americans. And it's always, it's almost always this image of natives of the past. It, it doesn't, it rarely, if ever, connects to Native peoples today because they say Native peoples today, they even call some of them Coca-Cola Indians, you know, Indians that have been perverted by modern culture so they're not really authentic anymore, especially if you were born um, in a city or not on a reservation. Hmm. And, you know, needless to say, if you were to say the same thing, you know, to someone who identifies themselves as a white German, why aren't you wearing Lederhausen, you know, and drinking (laughs) beer, they would be equally offended by that stereotype. Yeah, that's it's actually one of the examples I use um, quite often because I said uh, as a as a kid, you know, I was really fascinated because I grew up near a military base. So you saw a lot of different um, people from all over the place. So I studied a lot of different cultures and some of them I particularly studied Germany because I was born in Germany. My father was in the military, so I had a little bit of a different connection to it. And there's some things that I find really admirable about German people and society as a whole. Of course, there's a lot of problematic images. But however much I might admire some things, you will not see me dressing up in some German traditional clothing or anything or pretending to be German. It didn't matter if I had brown skin or not. That's not what I've been taught as a way to show appreciation or any kind of uh, connection to. So it's, um, it's, it's kind of privileged behavior and entitlement to take and use other people's however you want just for self-gratification. So this is your first feature film and you've previously made a number of shorts, both live action and um, animated. What was your sort of preparation for doing your first feature and how was the process of kind of raising funds to make it? It was a really, it was like a really big crash course <laughs> in filmmaking because like, like you said, I did some shorter um, films before and different things. And of course I was a writer, did publishing, but I was not experienced with uh, editing programs or anything like that. My biggest preparation was probably the research and personal observations I've been doing for like the last 15 years Mm -hmm. and all these stories I was hearing from different people and writing it up in a way that it won't just seem like criticism that you're Mm -hmm. just putting in where everybody's just criticizing a certain thing but can actually be educational in some way helpful in some way and I think feeling this responsibility to let these people tell their stories and their experiences kind of overcame my fear or doubt of not being able to produce something. It's like, I like my film. Anyone can see when watching it, it was some technical things that could have been done better, but I hope the story comes over. The process itself of um, funding was like any independent filmmaker. It was really difficult in that there's so many things that you can contribute to, stories and whatnot, but um, documentaries that may seem critical to white people or white culture in general don't get a lot of funds. The people that have the money don't really want to give it, or the average person. In Germany, there continues to be little or no interest in this film because it's like this fear they know it's going to be critical. So um, we did like... Um, a little uh, crowd fundraising and was able to to get enough to you know 
It was about a little over 4,000 euro to get us going. Uh, like most independent filmmakers, you know, I put in close to like 15,000 euro of my own wow. in time and money to, to get it going. And for me, it's worth it in that I really, really want to um, have a better world or create, help create a better world for all children. And if the stories of some of these people that became my friend or were my friend or can help in that in some way, it's definitely worth it. Mm. I mean, you said that uh, you found it difficult to find a German audience for this film, but um, it's interesting that one of the clips that you have hosted on Vimeo is being shown at an exhibition about racism in Dresden. Mm. So it's it's funny that some of the stereotypes about Native Americans are being propagated by an exhibition in one museum, and then you're challenging them in an exhibition in a different museum. Yes, and that was, it's kind of, maybe they're kind of risque, kind of um, put it out there to the public and see what they think. But at the same time, for me, it's kind of problematic because they still don't have the discussion specifically on this topic. There continues to be the issue that native stereotypes are kind of separated from the topic of racism because they say, oh, native stereotypes aren't bad. Most of them are good. So it can't be racism. Yes, it's in it's in that uh, display and uh, hopefully people will see it and, you know, have some conversations about it. But it, the issue of Native Americans is too often separated from the, the main topic of racism. In Germany, even even among people of color, because they say, oh, you know, natives have it good because they're favorites here. But racism is racism. Mm. It, it, it's all connected. So I think it's it's it has to be recognized that this is the part of, of racism, too, whether someone thinks it's it's a good thing or it's appreciation or not. Mm. So in terms of uh, the screenings that the film has had already the extracts that are in this gallery and online. What's the reaction been like so far? Has it actually started to open up debate? I would say not enough or, or not really. It okay. hasn't been that, that many type of discussions. I think uh, what I've experienced most is that, say about three years ago when we were just really developing and getting the idea out there, we had a few more conversations with people where they recognized that there was an issue with uh, Winnetou and how it's been used and how um, cultural appropriation in society, for example. But as we got a little bit more clear in our synopsis and, and what we were actually going to be showing in our film, we had some of these same people who at first were supporting the, the film, white Germans, for example, who then said, no, I'm sorry, uh, you know, you're trying to take something away from my childhood. You're trying to take something away from German society as a whole, so I can wow. no longer support your film. Huh. And that happened It happened quite a bit, and we I still kind of regularly get that because, for example, on Facebook, I, on our uh, film page, I often share some different stories or situations that are going on, and you always have those same ones who are supporting you up to a point and then you maybe talk about some subject that personally they don't like, like we're talking about a 
a tobacco company who's using Native American imagery or some false story to sell their cigarettes, for example. And they're like, oh, no, 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 you've gone too far, so I can no longer support you. So it's always very, very conditional. Gosh, so it's it's doubly patronizing in a way that you not only have these stereotypes reinforced by films, books and exhibitions, but then you're told by the various gatekeepers of society that you're not allowed to challenge them either. Yeah, it's it, that's it, basically it is like you don't get to complain and how dare you kind of criticize us, which is I think that's one of the the biggest issues that kind of have within or I've observed within uh, some German friends or society as a whole. There always kind of reaches the point that it's basically, well, you don't know us. Mm. How dare you criticize us? And they kind of reject you as a whole. But they are willing to comment on everything else and criticize everything else and tell you what you should do with your culture or your people. So it's really kind of hypocritical. Mm. Well, hopefully this screening in London and future screenings, the film and you know whatever sort of home release it gets will start to alert audiences uh, to this issue and you know hopefully you'll get positive feedback as time goes on. I hope so too because for me it's whether someone likes or dislikes the film is kind of immaterial. It's really irrelevant to me in that I can't change that but I do hope it starts conversations in people's homes among their peers among their colleagues and then they can make some changes on their own. They don't ever have to tell me anything about it. It just hopefully it makes some change positively somewhere. Forget Winnetou, Loving in the Wrong Way, is screening on the 17th of October at the Native Spirits Festival in London, and director Red Harecrow and his production team will be in attendance at the screening to discuss the movie with the audience afterwards. Other films screening at the Native Spirit Festival include Ça fait si longtemps, It Has Been a Long Time, which is the first film made by a Taiwanese Aboriginal film director, Suming, Carrying the Flag, which explores the life of the Panga Amos tribe, Tierra Sin Mal, Land Without Evil, which looks at the native experience of Bolivians, Tribal Justice, a documentary about Yurok and Quechan tribal courts and alternative justice systems based on traditions, not to mention a number of other screenings talks and filmmakers events taking place between the 11th and 21st of October. For more information about all of the film screening at the Native Spirit Festival, please go to nativespiritfoundation.org. The next film under discussion is Precognition, a new low-budget British sci-fi film which imagines a ravaged Britain where all of the population are in denial about their surroundings due to an embedded augmented reality app which makes the world around them seem a lot nicer than it actually is. To provide a link between the German setting of Forget Winnetou and the potential nuclear fallout that created the world of precognition, here's Nana with 99 Red Balloons. You and I in a little toy shop Buy a bag of balloons with the money we've got Set them free at the break of dawn To one by one Back at base, box in the software, flash the message Something's out there, floating in the summer sky 99 red balloons go by Ooh. 
Next is my interview with Luke Tedder about his movie Precognition, a film which imagines a future Britain in a state of perpetual fear and warfare, as humanity has their vision altered by an embedded augmented reality app, oblivious to the parlour state that their lives are in. My interview with Luke was recorded at Sci-Fi London, the London Science Fiction and Fantastic Film Festival, which takes place at the Stratford Picture House each summer in East London, so you'll have to forgive the background noise. Well, I had a look at your back catalogue online, and you made about 20 shorts uh, before this. Yeah, uh, a variety of different kind of genres. That was our <laughs> first like, big sci-fi thing that we attempted to do. So in order to get the budget for a feature, in order to get the cast for a feature, did you kind of almost have to create this enormous CV in order to convince people that you could make a film? Um, no, we did Kickstarter, and we did... Um, oh, we just found the rest of ourselves, actually. Okay, um, wow. And we cut the cost, though, by um, filming at places that most of us work full-time. Ben works at a school, so most of our locations were set in school. Okay. <laughs> a particularly dystopian school. Um, well, the thing is, it's, it's a huge school and there's like a really old section and a really new section, so you, you, we, we were kind of toying with the idea of either doing a horror or a sci-fi, but we have more ideas for sci-fi, so we went for that. Although you, you don't stint on the gore. <laughs> no. So it's here we've like fulfilled our horror ambitions. Uh, you're quite young, and yet you've made a really dark movie. What, what, what were the inspirations? <laughs> uh, no, repressed trauma. Yeah, no, it's, it is quite a dark movie. Um, but, you know, when we're, we're thinking of ideas of what we could do, um, certainly with technology, um, I think we had more ideas going dark than we did doing a more positive story about technology. Mm. I mean, in terms of British science fiction, you do seem to be tapping into a lot of uh, the themes of a program like uh, Black Mirror. But at the same time, there's a kind of backdrop of the Matrix going on. That, you know, these are, this is a society which has created its own delusion in order to make life more bearable. Um, is there anything going on in the current world that you felt kind of inspired that, you know, the whole kind of rise of VR again and, you know, the obsession that people have with smartphones? Maybe not so much with VR, but there's something going on in China, China at the moment where they're actually putting everyone on, like, a scoring system mm. um, where, like, your credit score and, uh, well, social... I don't know how far they're going with that, mm. but um, they're actually doing that kind of thing for real where yeah. people will be scored on the system and maybe you won't be able to buy a house if your score is lower, but they all will get a certain job, which is kind of slightly disturbing. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but I don't know whether they've actually rolled that out yet. Um, yeah, no, they, they have. I, I was reading the latest thing about that is um, if uh, parents uh, don't have a decent social score, then their kids won't be able to get into a decent school. Oh, it's that far, wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Welcome to the world we live in. Um, but in terms of kind of like things going on in the West, is there anything... Uh, uh, well, VR technology is obviously becoming more popular, so yeah, definitely, but I don't think, um, hopefully, VR technology would be used to trick people into, <laughs> you know, doing things they shouldn't be, but you don't know. Um, but, you know, maybe if we made the film in 10 years' time, maybe it wouldn't be so like, oh, that can happen, maybe, because it would be like, you know, potentially current. Mm. The only criticism I'd have of the film is that it's your, it's almost too ambitious. There is enough plot there for like three movies or a TV series. Well, when I was editing it, the problem was there was a lot more. Right. Um, <laughs> well, I think it's four-hour director's cut. Yeah, 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 no, it's in your sleep. Um, but the, 
what we, we, I was thinking is like, oh, this would, might make a good web series. Mm. Um, but then again, we set out to make a film, so um, it was sort of parting ways with a lot of the uh, the, the other bits of backstory that uh, what I really liked, but I think would have been too much. <laughs> In terms of the Kickstarter, then, how did you convince people to kind of uh, help fund a movie by a relatively unknown filmmaker? It was friends, you know. Okay. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, the. We tried T-shirts and we tried all those kind of things. Uh, no one liked that. Um, so uh, the only advice I can really give with Kickstarter, with making it successful, is um, yeah, friends and family, <laughs> but um, to uh, get them to like a part and have them be an extra or something like that. That seemed to yeah. be yeah the most popular option actually. <laughs> Were people uh, vying for the most gory death on screen? Uh, well, I don't think anyone really knew how gory it was going to be. <laughs> um, and presumably also in your circle of friends, you had someone who's excellent at doing special effects because they were great. Oh, I, I did them. <laughs> well, but I didn't have to do them before doing the movie, okay. but because YouTube's so great and uh, there's things like Video Co-Pilot and you can learn pretty much anything you need to learn. As long as you've got some time um, to sit down and give it a go um, and some... Some people around here are going to be extremely critical for when things don't look right. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a learning curve. Nice. And it took a while. Does anyone in the audience have any questions for the director? So, I guess when the movie started, I thought it was aliens that were taking over. And then I didn't, then they disappeared. And, it, and everything just became like part of society. So, I guess I'm wondering like when it started terms of who the attackers were in terms of like the, the war that was happening so many people were awesome. um, I don't know um, to be fair um, again if it was a miniseries maybe we would have gone into who the attackers were but um, yeah there definitely wasn't time to tell anyone what the war was actually about um, well, that was my interpretation is that we weren't supposed to know what the war was about oh really oh right that's um, what I maybe it could have been aliens but know. I just jumped in Maybe, 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 I don't know. But no, but they were firing at people in masks, but I don't know. But their game is their perception, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, it could, could be aliens. If, if, if we're all venturing our opinion, uh, I, I, <laughs> I read it as that kind of Orwellian war on terror that we're already experiencing in the media, where there seems to be endless wars by people we don't know about in the Middle East, and it's because of that going on that society is convinced to take up these new technologies because it's going to make their lives easier. Wow. Um, it's quite amazing. When you kind of make these things, you don't kind of think that deeply into it. You're just like, yeah, there's, okay. there's some things blowing up, and, you know, <laughs> Yeah, but it was really cool that people interpret it in that way, and it's like, wow, you're sort of like making it so smart. And yeah, that, that, and yeah well, we, never, we never thought that far into it. Well, I certainly didn't. But and that's really cool that uh, people sort of perceive it. Oh, that's the... That was kind of the thing going into it, kind of like the kind of storytelling we wanted to kind of do was hopefully um, give people space to kind of fill in the gaps and not give all the answers, um, but hopefully give enough so you could still follow. It, it's from the very first time of war to wrap, what was your shoot time, and then you go into post prod and editing and all the rest of that stuff? Uh, well, we did like a first three weeks uh, where everyone could get time for work and could film in the school. Um, overall, the film took about uh, there were about seventy days, I think, filming. But however, it was over the period of two years. 
Um, it certainly wasn't all done at the same time, it was done on weekends, just when people were free. Um, visual effects, did it as I went, and I could see what was going, you know, what was working, what wasn't. Um, and then the big rush at the end, um, we finished the film in February and had a little cast and crew screening, um, but it was far from done, even in December, so it was kind of a big rush to get it finished. Um, and it was actually only finished the day. Thank you. The premiere. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel like you're living in just the right time to make a movie like this, not because of the kind of horrible world that seems to be developing around us, but in terms of the technology, the fact that you know even five years ago you wouldn't be able to get a decent drone for the aerial shots, you wouldn't be able to have a home computer that you could do the editing or the rendering on. Yeah, um, you probably couldn't have made. You probably could have made this film five years ago, but it wouldn't have wouldn't looked as cool. Um, yeah, you wouldn't have been able to do all the. You could have done the effect. To be fair, a lot of the effects that were used in it, uh, um, yeah, you could have done it five years ago. It may have just taken longer. Um, it would still be rendering right now. It was, yeah, that's the only thing, yeah. Nice. Cool. Well, thank you very much for bringing your debut feature to Sci-Fi London, and uh, hopefully we'll get... And thank you very much for everyone taking the time to come and see it. Uh, I really appreciate it. First film in the festival, so that's, that's really cool. Hopefully many more to come. Thank you. Precognition, directed by Luke Tedder, will be available shortly to download via Amazon Prime Video, and you can find more information about the film and its distribution by going to Facebook and searching for Lander, L-A-N-D-A, Pictures. As we leave Tedder's vision of a future Britain in perpetual warfare, here's another cheerful tune about the end of the world, with Talking Heads performing Nothing But Flowers.
Finally, in this evening's show, I'm talking to director Stephen Eastwood about his powerful and moving documentary, The Island, which follows the end-of-life experience of four residents at a hospice in the Isle of Wight. Stephen's film includes footage of the actual death of one of his subjects, and this is something we'll be talking about in the interview, so please be aware that this is a subject that some listeners may feel uncomfortable being discussed. The last time we talked uh, was when your film Buried Land showed yes. at the East End Film Festival. So basically, it took you nearly seven years to fund uh, your second film. I guess such is the nature of the British film industry. <laughs> but um, were there setbacks yeah, it, along the way? It's interesting. Well, I, I think most filmmakers have different projects in development and some of them you, you put a lot of time into and the funding never comes through mm. and then others that you think you know won't get funded do and it's just a it, it it does take time to make long form films as an artist it really does but uh i had another project that i was trying to get funded and i've since managed to fund but it it was on the back burner and this one this one just took a long while because i had to do a lot of research and because of the sensitive nature of the subject and the ethical complexity i really had to immerse myself in in that space and and it took a long time to get partners and and to get access yeah i mean it's interesting you know thinking of possible links between the two films that with buried land there is an ambiguity about whether the narrative that's unfolding is something that's trustworthy and with the island you actually film the moment of death but the viewer can't actually tell when your subject actually has died so there is this kind of liminal space where yeah you know you don't know when the person is alive and when the person is dead and that's something that you kind of reflect throughout the movie with shots of fog and you know the kind of eerie atmosphere of the isle of Wight. yes i mean it's fascinating you know so i i still feel incredibly privileged and fortunate that uh i was invited to be with somebody when they died alan Mm -hmm. hardy did it was his idea it was his suggestion and then you know it took a lot of logistics to make sure that that could happen we had to have his family and the hospice team um, he had to be witness saying that he wanted me to film him Mm. when he'd lost consciousness and um of course i'd got to know him we'd spent many uh, many days filming before that happened but uh um that 
that is in the film and it's interesting because of course i've seen that that uh very private footage many many times and mm. i've watched the film many times but i still wonder if he's going to draw another breath mm. you know and my body is still kind of almost willing him it's a strange kind of physical empathy i think we have it's as though we attach to another and i i sort of sort of think are you going to breathe again but you hear the nurses say oh you might get another breath mm. and they're quite casual about it because to them there isn't this obsession with that death has happened now mm. it's more of a sort of slipping away and uh having got having talked for years about wanting to give an image to the moment of death i of course realized that you can't no. you know it doesn't really present as an event in the way that you would think mm. and obviously as a filmmaker when you're depicting people's lives on screen you have a relationship with them and it certainly felt watching the film that you had actually developed a friendship uh with alan so i guess yeah. you know as a as a filmmaker did you feel that there were boundaries that you crossed or that it was something that was inevitable because it was such an intimate part of people's lives that you sort of had to get more involved than you might have done otherwise i think that filmmaking is it's always well the kind of filmmaking i do is about relationships and it is about having a relationship to others and to the world mm. and i think that i think that if there is any common ground between buried land and island it is that i think filmmakers have a very strange ambiguous status artists in general i mean i don't want to romanticize that but i think when you when you say you're going to make a documentary film you arrive as a stranger nobody knows you and for a period of time, you're sort of an interrupter or you kind of you have certain kind of privileges or license to do things with with people that you if you didn't have a camera, you wouldn't even ask to do. Mm. But I also think that the people that I met were already in count, sort of transgressing boundaries because uh, we all live with this indeterminate sort of sense of we will, you know, we know that death is going to happen to us, but it feels sufficiently far away that we don't really think about it. Mm. But when somebody's given a terminal diagnosis, the way that they are in relation to their lives and their, the people they love is so profoundly present. And I think that, I, you know, if I had approached any one of these people for a different subject to make a film before they got this diagnosis, they may have said no. Mm. But I think that they, they said yes uh, and and the film is very much about us trying to do something together. I think they said yes because they wanted to, to do something radical in a mm. way, especially Alan. I think Alan and Jamie, the two main subjects, both really saw an opportunity to do something uh, w with this film, and they took ownership over it. Mm. So, um, no, I never really felt that I was being as transgressive as you might think or you know we had com conversations I, I would often say you know just tell me if you want me to stop filming but as i said for alan it was really important to him that 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 he or every aspect of his the end of his life was was featured mm. um and with jamie it, it i think it was more a sense of wanting to record something perhaps for his daughter or 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 really, it was a private. It was a way of of making sense of what was happening to him away from the chaos of his life. Mm. Well, I suppose the the transgressive aspect of it is that as a society in the UK, death isn't something that we kind of deal with. You know, it's something that's behind closed doors or romanticized yeah. or you know, sort of featured as a plot device in films. But in terms of everyday life and death, it's something that's not really discussed in society. No, and I, you know, before I went into this. 
I felt pretty poorly informed myself. Although some people, my mother-in-law at the time um, died shortly before I started this film and she had uh, a terminal cancer. And so I, and she died at home, but I would say that I felt, I felt pretty unaware of what happens to our bodies and what kinds of care we can receive. And, and I think that, you know, that's reflected more broadly in society. I think that we are much more familiar with what happens to our bodies at birth and what happens to private experiences like sex. Hmm. But, you know, death is still something that we seem to be saying is off limits, but I don't know if we know why. You know, it's a bit of a kind of an inherited wisdom that, well, that's obviously something that has to be private, but I'm not not sure if if that's always the case, you know. Mm. And I do think that we are increasingly less private as people, you know, through mm. social media and other things. And I do think that probably it's possible and I hope that the film can partly contribute to sort of, you know, evolving so that we're more we're more accustomed to the natural like kind of, you know, mortal finite nature of our bodies. Mm because it is what we're designed to do, you know, and although we don't want it to happen, it's, it, it, it does, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and, and, and I sort of feel quite increasingly acclimatized to that. You know, it's just, it is, it's just what we're biologies, you know. Mm. Is the Isle of Wight uh, a location that you have a personal connection with? I mean, it works very well in the context of the film is that it's, very much an isolated community that you can only get to by boat or by ferry. Um, but in terms of that being the location of the film, um, was it serendipity or, or something that you wanted to uh, to see on film? Well, it's interesting because when I started out making this film and doing the research, I realised that metaphor, especially in fiction film, there's so much metaphor and, and sort of... Um, somebody symbol stand in for something direct that happens to our bodies and i thought well we just need to get metaphor out of the way (laughs) (laughs) and i was developing the project with a london hospice because i'm based in london and i know that that the way that people die is very unpredictable so it felt sensible to be near the organization but when i got the funding in place the person that worked at that hospice he relocated to the Isle of Wight Mm. and I built up this incredible trust with him and he really understood the open way in which I work. And he knew that we were entering into the unknown in terms of what films a film can do. And he wanted to get behind it. So, so I went out to visit and met his team and it was clear to me that they were trying to do something quite progressive with the model of how hospices work you know, tucked away on this island, but they're very, very central to that island because it's an aging population. The hospice has a very strong sort of presence on the island. And as soon as I went out there, I I knew that it was going to be possible logistically. And then, of course, you've got this incredibly beautiful landscape. So I ended up with the, with this compelling metaphor, having not wanted to work with metaphor. Hmm. And uh, But I, I think that I hope that the film kind of uses things like metaphor and even humor there is surprisingly you know people might not expect going into the film but but you will laugh mm. and uh, so there are all these devices like metaphor and humor um that i think can help you adjust to uh much more direct images so that by the end of the film you know metaphor isn't really isn't there and you just have it's just you and and an image of somebody dying but it's okay 
But I did fall for the island. The, the island is, uh, I think it gets a bit of a bad press and I think it's a really remarkable place for lots and lots of reasons. And it's pretty unthinkable for me now to, you know, to imagine having made it anywhere else. Yeah. And I guess uh, the main metaphor being, particularly with uh, the shots of boats emerging from the fog, is that there is the yeah. sense of boats crossing the River Styx into, you know, into limbo. Yes. Yeah, um, and I think that's a reassuring, you know, image that we have of the ferryman and the passing over. And and I think that, you know, we need things to stand in for the unknown, and that's fine. Um, and I think those ferries in the film sort of, they function also to sort of give the film a sort of weightlessness, because I didn't want the film to really be grounded in the normal kind of documentary, you know, narration you know, biographic information here's what medicine this person is on that kind of stuff it doesn't it doesn't doesn't work that way mm. and so the fairies i hope help feel that you're kind of suspended so the, they, they really lent they really helped us structure the film in the edit was this sense of buoyancy and and it's that's because we really don't know it's not an experience that you know, we have reports back from unless you have a particular religious conviction. So, you know, it's not just the the, the island is a metaphor for dying. It's also that we can't we only die on our own. Mm. You know, it's something we do by ourselves, you know. Yeah. And also, I guess, you know, the metaphor of um, the place we go after death being some kind of geographical notion is something that's existed throughout all sorts of uh, myths and literature and forms of storytelling, you know, thinking of, you know, another country from whose bound one can never return, he says, misquoting Shakespeare. So I think, you know, <laughs> it works really well in those terms also. Yes. I mean, yes, we, it, we, and I think literature has been really helpful for our understanding of death. And, and actually I think literature right now um, is, is still, is still a more powerful sort of contemporary force in dealing with end of life, terminal illness, bereavement. Um, and I think that the visual arts and cinema, um, it's just extraordinary to me because you look at the history of painting and there are these incredible renderings of sort of bedsides with family and members of the community mm. with somebody as they die. But then that disappears in the kind of modern age of the last 150 years or so as this is my personal feeling that as death becomes more of a sort of shameful thing or, you know, it's not it, it, all it all it means. It's a failure of the body. It means we're not productive, youthful sort of entities. And so you lose that insight. And um, and I think that uh, we need the arts you know, in, as, as, as much as we do, you know, organizations such as hospices to kind of demystify and destigmatize this space because most of us only experience it when our lives are in chaos and we have no preparation mm. obviously you got consent from the four people who are the main subject of the film but in terms yeah. of uh involving their friends and family what were those conversations like yes uh, i mean of course this was something that we, we gave a lot of time to because um none of the four people were were able to see the finished film they all mm. died you know, I stopped filming. Only Mary that was alive when I finished filming, and she died a couple of months later. Um, so, for Jamie, the filming, although it was very important to him as a, a semi-private experience, but his wife and his family were aware that it was happening, and his wife knew how important it was for him. 
so that was a that was something that had been discussed for alan um he had a surviving daughter uh, his wife had died the year before and his daughter I, I would say shares some of his kind of radical philosophy of life and she she really felt that whatever her dad wanted it was up to him and she has been a fierce advocate for the film as has jamie's wife mm. in fact um the London Film Festival very kindly when we premiered last year they brought Jamie's wife and his mother up from the Isle of Wight and treated wow. them like kind of stars really and gave them a hotel and they came to the premiere and many of Jamie, many of Jamie's friends were there and we've had numerous other screenings where all of his family have been there hmm. and for them it's an incredible um, legacy you know there's 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 something of pride in that although his life um ended very you know he was he was only 40 mm. but uh, something has come out of that and uh alan there's also like a, i should say there was a count there was a kind of sister piece to the project called which was a gallery project that um i had on a fabrica in brighton mm. and that's where the, the project grew out of this gallery piece called the interval and the instant uh same same footage but realized across seven screens mm. and uh alan's daughter came to the private view of that so um uh, all the families have been on board you know Roy's partner Mary's sons and um that's of course very important to us but it, uh, but I will say that it it does shine a light on some of the ethical difficulties that filmmakers face but also hospices face because um we had the consent of the people who were filmed and um I have known of other films where that consent was given but then uh, members of the family after the death closed those projects down. Right, and, they, and I think it's really dramatic in terms of what we think about kinship and what we think consent is. And this, of course, forget about film and art. This happens all the time with people's funerals and all kinds of like choices they've made in their will that are then changed through through di differences of opinion within family. Mm. But thankfully, we didn't have to have that um, conversation about. Uh, you know well consent is given and i don't think we wanted to have to you know i think we would have had to back down but um thankfully all of the families on board were mm. really positive about what we've done yeah well and also i was thinking in terms of say jamie's friends uh, where there's a scene where you show him watching football with a couple of friends um yeah obviously they were on board um how was kind of their reaction to it because you know being with someone who you care about and knowing that they're dying is one thing but sharing the experience of them being filmed during that process as well is something very different well he has had uh, an, an incredibly strong supportive loving community a very big community of people around him um and you can see that in a scene sequence in the film where they organize this fundraiser, this, mm. this big raffle and, you know, over a hundred people came to help raise money for him and his family. And you see that close knit community. So he had many very close friends that were in the hospice with him, drinking Guinness and watching football right up until the day that he died mm. and trying to normalize and, you know, not turn him into a, a, a condition or an illness, but, to keep that relationship as it has had always been defined and i think that was their attitude when watching the film really their focus was on jamie and i think there was a great sense of pride in him and pride in his participation in this film so nobody seems to have sort of taken exception to their own appearance i think it everybody <laughs> seemed to recognize it was much more about you know something else really yeah. 
But I think for them, feeling that, you know, wanting people to be more aware that cancer can affect younger people, mm. you know, to, to wanting the film to have a function and an impact has become very important for them. So um, I think that's really where their, where their attention is. Yeah. So the film follows each of your four subjects for a year and it's 90 minutes long, the final cut that's being screened. How much footage did you shoot overall? I shot about 130 hours. Gosh. But, and that's, that was 4K, which uh, if any of your listeners work in this uh, territory, they'll know is a hell of a lot of hard drive space. Yeah. Uh, but that does include 38 hours of continue the continuous filming of the end of alan's life mm. so i had to be named uh, as one of his next of kin on his medical records because he had lost consciousness and the hospice team felt that he would probably die in the next 48 hours mm. and so i I'd actually just been with him a few days before and come back to London and I went straight back and I, I had already developed a system for continuously filming. Hmm. And so, um, so I felt, so there was 38 hours, which is actually, I mean, of course it's an incredible um, document. So um, seven minutes of that recording is in the feature film, but we also we include five hours of that recording in the gallery piece because you have more Gosh. luxury of time in the gallery. And it's just about, um, you know, Alan the person has receded and it's Alan's body and it's it, there's something beautiful about how his breaths kind of run out in a sort of motor, it's like the, the motor running down mm. of his body and that's what that footage includes and, 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 and of course also very significantly and this was something he knew was going to happen, his after-death care, so you see the moment of his death but you also see how the team talk to him brush his hair wash him change his clothes and uh and then you see him at the chapel of rest mm. so it's it's very intimate but uh, at his invitation and yes the rest of them i shot over a year but but i i, I didn't I, I would go out there for three or four days at a time and so um yeah there was there was quite a lot to draw upon which yeah. is why the feature film came out because i knew that the the relationships that were emerging and the material that I was able to film really, you know, there was more to do with it than the gallery piece. Mm. And I guess the irony is you were with Alan as he died, but watching that sequence in the film, I got the impression that you'd actually nodded off and had to be woken by the nurse. So you may have actually missed the moment and so had to go and watch the film to see it. That's, that is the case. Yeah. So I had... You know, the way that the, these cameras work is you have two memory card slots and there's one is recording. You can swap the other out and mm. back it up. And uh, so I was having to manage, you know, a, a personal relationship. And, you know, I'd got to know Alan, but I was also ha having to be quite technical and managing those two spaces. And I was doing that for, um, you know, 36 hours. So I'd, I was incredibly tired, mm -hmm. 38 hours. And uh, and the, the nursing team came in and said, we're going to put a little mattress on the floor for you. And so I lay down just to rest my head and then he died. Right. I think I had my head down for about 20 minutes. And so the team woke me up. But, you know, I, I can't really imagine Ireland without that, all of those events configured together mm. because 
because it says so much, I think, about how we hope to be with somebody when they die, but that doesn't always happen. And mm. you hear stories of people flying halfway around the world to be with their parent, and then they go out into the corridor to get a cup of tea, and yeah. that's when that person goes. And people have, pe- some people have opinions about whether or not the person is there. It's, that's about attachment and, and letting go. Um, make of that what you will. But I also think that um, I, I hope that I've acted as an intermediary or somebody that 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 because of my presence through the film shows the viewer that it's okay to be within these private spaces but by and i think that trust and consent is established and but by the end of the film you know when you know i'm asleep you realize it's just you and alan Mm. you know i'm sort of not there and uh and i think that's quite an important moment for the film because it is about us having that i think being able to Elham uh, Shakarafar, who produced the film, and I have many conversations about, we, we, we often talk about what we shouldn't look at, mm. but we don't talk so much about what we shouldn't not look at. Mm. You know, And I think that the film is very much about, uh, for me, giving people an agency by continuing to look, rather than say, acting on their behalf and saying, I don't think this would be appropriate, so I turn my camera off. Because I think that, in many ways, is it can be a, a sort of an erasure of that person and an erasure of something very natural, which which does happen to us all. Mm. So you're just looking and you're 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 sharing in and witnessing something when I'm asleep, and I think that's okay. Yeah, you know, I was very tired. It's <laughs> understandable. <laughs> um, what's the audience reaction been like for people who have seen it, both at festival screenings and indeed in the gallery space? Well, I've been making films for quite a while and uh, I've never had an experience of a film like this. Every time we screen the film in a cinema, nobody leaves the cinema afterwards. No, everybody stays in their seat. Wow. Uh, and that included at the premiere at the London Film Festival, I think 200 or 250 people in that room. Uh, everybody stayed. We, we, had a, we, we, we are just starting our our. Our, release of, our cinema release of the film now and we've been having preview screenings we had one at the picture house in in piccadilly on monday and we had a one hour q a uh, afterwards which the cinema very kindly facilitated and allowed that space nobody left and then even when they kicked us out people wanted to carry on talking mm. so we've been struck by how the cinema can become a sort of secular space for a Uh, a conversation that people seem to want to have people feel very moved by the film which is something new to me as well i don't i don't i don't ever intend to sort of sort of elicit emotions from people but the film has its own emotional register Mm. um people talk about the film you know going in they they feel slightly nervous but coming out they say they feel uplifted which is also great to hear And then uh, in the gallery, the, the piece was up at Fabrica for two months at the end of last year. And we had, I think, five or 6,000 people came to see the show. And Gosh. yeah, and a lot of uh, many, many, many positive comments about how sort of that, that space, that space of art has an, had enabled people to, to sort of, you know, sort of get over a, a, a hurdle of fear in a way. So the reaction has been really good. Um, we've been getting some good reactions through the press. It's interesting for us because we feel that anybody that's most people that see this film um, f- 
they, they, they their reaction is tremendously positive. It's mm. just convincing, I suppose, our cultural uh, spaces to trust that there are audiences for something this difficult. But I think, you know, talking to you and, and, and having sort of like radio, TV and press mm. respond to the film is really, really helpful because, you know, the more people that see it, the more they tell people to see it. And, and you know, hopefully our audiences can grow. It's looking good at the moment. Mm. I think this is a film that that might might have a you know it, it it might take years you know yeah it's it's part of I think a change that we're seeing in our society where we are more open to talking about difficult subjects like our mortality but it doesn't have to be a blockbuster it, it can take its own time mm, indeed well I mean I found it very moving and, and very powerful but I have to admit I started watching it using the Vimeo app on my TV and actually I was quite glad that the app crashed because I was finding it too much on a 40 inch screen and when I yeah. watched it on the iPad I found it more manageable somehow um, uh -huh. just the, the the intensity of it almost like it has to be on a smaller screen for me and I'm sure other people would feel the exact opposite you know hence the um you know, the reaction you've had in the cinema. But but it is interesting just how it is the kind of thing you're not used to looking at. And for me, I found it just too much on a, on a larger screen. It's interesting. I think everybody, much as we have our own feelings about how we are around illness or what we want to see or how we want to, you know, share, I think that people have different ways of seeing this film mm. we've had people write to us saying they really want to get it on dvd because they don't feel ready to see it in a public setting yeah we've had other people say how reassuring it is to be in a room with 200 people and to sort of feel like there's a sort of somehow almost a kind of an animal or a kind of psychological like sharing of that mm. you know like you feel like you went somewhere with other people it's designed to be seen in the cinema and it, it is mm. um i mean it only has 140 cuts in 90 minutes so it's it's about it's partly about waiting and and, and watching and and, and slowing down mm. and i think that when you're watching it on your laptop or in your living room there are so many contingent pressures on you mm. so the cinema at least says close your life off for 90 minutes so yeah. it but i think it works in different environments for different people and we're, we're really excited to learn about how it is seen it's actually being used uh, at the moment in the, the training of medical doctors as well so it's wow. having different kind of applications and the nurses that have seen the film have found it very instructive just to look at you know because they're so selfless these people that work in these settings mm. that they just do their job but for them to watch themselves doing their job has also been quite powerful so you know i think people find their way to this film and find and watch it in the way that it feels right for them yeah well, I mean, even thinking of the social aspect of it, uh, my partner said, I'm glad that you're not watching this alone. So yes. know, even that as a reaction, I, I think is very interesting. Yeah. I mean, as I say, we're learning about it. And, you know, and but one of the things that Elham and I say is that we, with other films, you watch them and you, of course, you see them and you edit a lot and then you take them to festivals. And then after a while, you feel like, you know, I've seen this film 20 times. I don't need to be here. Um, but we feel really it's just a chance to to be with those four people again. And uh, and that's, you know, I, I, I find myself feeling like the viewer of my film. Mm. And that's something very new. And, and uh, I, I really enjoy that being able to to watch it. And I think that's just a testimony to to that organization and those four people. 
The film The Island by Stephen Eastwood continues to tour the UK and Ireland in screenings taking place over the next few months. On September 30th at the Irish Film Institute in Dublin, on October the 1st at the Genesis Cinema in London, on October the 5th at the Macrobur Arts Centre in Stirling, on October the 9th at the Bridport Film Society Screening Room, on October the 21st at Mac in Birmingham, and at the Portsmouth Film Society on November the 14th. For more information about all of these screenings, please go to islandfilm.co.uk. If you'd like to know more about any of the issues discussed in my conversation with Stephen, you can find more information about British Hospice Care by going to hospiceuk.org and bereavementcare at cruise.org.uk, C-R-U-S-E dot org dot uk. An extended podcast version of all of the interviews you've heard in this evening's show will be available to download shortly from electricsheepmagazine.co.uk stroke events. The Electric Sheep Film Show was recorded, edited and presented by Alex Fitch and is a Panel Borders production. We'll be back on air on the third Wednesday in November and in this slot on the third Wednesday in October is the next episode of Audio Dramatics, the bi-monthly show in which I talk to people making audio dramas for CD, MP3 and radio broadcast. To play out tonight's show and returning to the subject of Native Americans as featured in my interview with Red Haircrow, here's a track by Tori Amos from her album Scarlet Walk, which concerns travels in America which coincide with city life and Native American experience, and her track, Don't Make Me Come to Vegas. Thanks for listening. Don't make me come to Vegas Don't make me pull you out of his
program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.